Welcome to It's Just Boxes, a podcast by Exologics about logistics, supply chain technology, and automation. I'm Paul Patton, head of technology at Exologics. On our first episode, I'll be speaking with John Stikes, Vice President of Automation at Exologics, about what your operation says about your optimal automation blueprint. John has over 15 years of experience in warehouse operations and innovation at several of the largest supply chains in the world, and is now an industry thought leader on human-centric and flexible automation. Hope you enjoy the discussion. Where I like to start with this kind of stuff is asking the question, basically, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because understanding where you want to go should drive your blueprint. And then the delta between what your blueprint looks like to what you have now today is what your process is to get there. And it's basically defining where does the bridge land? So when I, when I think about what is this question, the question to me is, is really heavily weighted towards what does, what does right look like for you? What does success in your operation mean? Because what I've found with too many of the automation providers out there is when we start talking about what's your blueprint to success, they're going to put you in the category of whatever their, their thesis is, whatever they think is the best technology for automation today. And the problem that creates is what if we're talking about football, but I'm talking about American football, you're talking about European football. I mean, we think we're saying the same things, but if we haven't decided how do you score a goal or how do you score a touchdown first, you're, you're playing the wrong game. And that's to me really when you ask, what does your operation say about what should your blueprint be? It's what does success look like? What does right look like? Everybody has unique factors. And to me, that's what you get into. We start talking about what does success look like first because when we talk to one set of clients, even if they have similar operations, they may have different levels of what a success look like. You may like a home goods yeah. facility, even asking these high level questions, if they didn't know or didn't discern and talk through the fact that what success looks like to them is really quick turnaround time. Okay. Well, really quick turnaround time can either be really fast for processing or lots of small buildings that are closer to people. Mm-hmm you can achieve both goals. And so to me, that's the path planning we take them through is what is it and why? I saw an article yesterday that had me thinking about whether some goals are even, you know, are even possible. Like where, where's the line where someone thinks that AGVs or Kiva robots is going to, you know, just solve everything. And sometimes you're just shoving more you know, more water through the same pipe. Um, There's a, you know, I saw an article yesterday about, uh, you know, it was one of those bombshell articles about Amazon safety and in their automated warehouses. Honestly, Engadget has no idea what they're talking about. That has a lot of hair on it because that's a, because how you spin that story is very different because one thing is they have a lot more people in those facilities than when they automated them. So if you look at pre-automation and post-automation average safety score, I I think that would be interesting. 
But more importantly, you cannot look at, I used to have five accidents per year. Now I have 10 accidents per year. If your people went up eight X, that's not, right. That's not the same. That's a big question mark. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I've watched documentaries about Amazon and they've, they've, uh, you know, their, their workers report walking dozens of miles a day and being, expe- mm-hmm. and being expected to scan at rates that, you know, frankly are barely humanly possible. But, yeah. um, is there anything that companies can take from that example? Cause right now everyone thinks they want to be Amazon. Well, like, well, I'll tell you, I think they are the poster child. So, Walmart and Amazon, I've worked in both of them. I think they are diametrically opposed in this example. Mm-hmm. Your question, I think, is the okay. most germane piece to why are they different. Because what they do, high level is the same thing. It's not mm-hmm. fundamentally yeah. wildly different. And it's the same stuff, pretty much. It comes from the same vendors, <laughs> the same containers. Yeah. It's the same. But they do it wildly differently. Part of that is because of how they sell it, of course. Mm-hmm. But what their thesis is, Walmart's design thesis is they want to put it through the pipe with as minimal effort as possible. And everything is pretty much designed around that precept. I certainly understand what you're saying there. It, it is, it is designed to be as low friction as possible. To it is detriment. low friction. Yeah. And it is. And I'm not saying they're right, but their design, if it yeah. means that a person can do it a little bit faster, because my, when I was an operator there, my throughput rates per person were higher than I've had anywhere else. But everything was designed around that person doing that job more efficiently there than anywhere else yeah. with no tools. Yeah. But the process was built for low friction. Amazon, though, takes the other approach where if we just add new technology, then we should be faster because we have a new technology that's going to give us an extra three, six, 10%, whatever that percentage increase is. And if you keep doing that, then you get really fast. The problem they're seeing is that they have built something to where the humans can't handle the technology versus the Walmart where the technology can't handle the humans. I mean, I think they're both wrong, (laughs) quite honestly. (laughs) They're just differently wrong. Yep. Uh, and that's a that's an interesting, but there are prerequisites to having prerequisites. automation. And, and yeah. I think that's really the kind of interesting piece here from a master data flexibility standpoint. And this is one of the evil geniuses, I think, of Walmart. Why I do think they actually win the battle against Amazon. I mean, I, people throw bottles at me, think I'm an idiot all the time when I say in a battle, Walmart's going to win the retail market, not Amazon. Right. Yep. And it's and it's simply because they understand the purpose of the logistics network is to support the automation. Amazon's logistics network is the business. Mm-hmm. And so they try to manage things through that man- master data. Whatever I got to do to get in the back of the store, get in the back of the store. Right. Amazon uses logistics as a profit center. And they pro- they put money into it like it's a profit center, where Walmart views it as a cost center. True. To me, that's when you start talking about what does success look like. If you're trying to make money in logistics, the way to make money in logistics is to not lose money in logistics. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> none of that's, us want to pay for pretty, shipping. You know, pretty blunt. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I, I will pay more for an iPhone because I like my iPhone, and I paid. Right. stupid money for my MacBook because 
I wanted a MacBook. I, I didn't pay stupid money to get it here five days earlier because that's just part of doing business. And I think that's the fundamental difference when people are, are trying to differentiate through logistics. If they think that it's going to make them more money, the way to do that is to lose them less money, not to make them more money. Because who in the world up pays voluntarily for stuff? We all complain about free shipping and then getting a free or getting a shipping charge. Yeah, I mean, so it is logistics in that sense is logistics you know, predestined to be a race to the bottom? I mean, it didn't used to be, but at the, uh, these days, these days, no one wants or no one's willing to pay any money mature, for two-day shipping. Mature markets become so. commoditized. I mean, that's just the way markets work. Is once there are enough entrants in the in the market that can fulfill the need it becomes a commoditized market and you lose your pricing premium in the, and to me, when people are looking at logistics automation, what I hope they're not looking for. And I would walk away from clients who do this. If they think that's going to put them in a preferred pricing structure because they have automation, no, it it helps you lose less money (laughs) on shipping. Therefore that gives you more margin to work with. So you could lower your prices or you could do it faster. You could do whatever. But automation is not the way to do that. Automation supports it. And I think it's just a different different look at the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Is the, so you, you were at Walmart at one time. You, you, know, you were on an Amazon account at another place. And, and then you were at G.B. Schenker. How does... Uh, what differences did you see in the way they viewed it between as a large 3PL versus a you know the world's largest retailer? So, a direct, and I would argue this this is the same way at any direct logistics operator. So anybody that runs their own warehouses is going to look at it similarly to Walmart mm-hmm. if they view it as a cost center versus a profit center like Amazon. So, I mean, there are two camps there. They're pretty diametrically opposed with two camps. But your Walmarts, your Targets, your, I would say, some of the other clients we have in the home goods areas, if they run their own facility and they see it as a, as a cost center, they're going to be myopically focused on low friction, low cost, fast, better, faster, cheaper. If you're looking at it as a profit center, and, and this is where the three PLs get in trouble is their goal is to save you just enough money to keep you interested. I mean, the, the, the three PLs dirty little secret is they're trying to stay just above the Mendoza line. You know, like the batting average, it keeps you in major league baseball. You just want to be as close to the Mendoza line as possible and just barely over it. That is an interesting balance. And so the, well, it's, so it's just like the labor pool. I mean, and this is where I lose my mind over labor, engineered labor standards. Because quite honestly, I think they're largely garbage. My honest, unvarnished opinion, I think they're mostly garbage. And the reason is because normally when we go out to do engineered labor standards, you go do this stupid observation and time study. How many times do you go as fast as you can driving down the road with your Lamborghini when the cops sitting there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. When we go out to do these time studies, it's not like we're sneaking around hiding in the bushes. You're standing there with a clipboard watching a guy. He is going to go <laughs> as slow as possible to not get fired. Yeah. And then your people will perform to that level, which is why, and I, this is probably a terrible way to do it, but in Walmart land, do you know how we did that? <laughs> we sat in a room, about four of us, usually it was usually the functional ops, the day shift weekday ops with the P&L needs for next year and figured out what our productivity increases had to be to hit the, hit the number. And then we horse traded what each line of the P&L had to do, each, each job code in the facility had to do to hit that number. And then basically we kind of swagged it of, we're kind of already operating at this level. Can we get another X percent? We're doing this here. We're doing this here. How do we shift around the same work between these things to get it more optimized? And then we walk, walked out and said, these are our new engineered standards. It was engineered. It was financially engineered. And you know what? That is amazing. Yeah. We wow. killed, killed every other engineering standard I have ever seen in any other business I have walked through. So when you say the when you say the number of annualized FTEs and you, you gave it as percentages, you're not mm -hmm. talking about you're not necessarily talking about how many employees are you? This is a is no, it a, not really. It it helps. We, I certainly like it. But more what that, that question designed, or the question is really more designed for, do you have a big peak to trough average? Yeah. Because if you're running 100 full-time and 1,000 temps, we can pretty readily assume our automation is going to be only used part of the year. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, if you have 1,000 full-time and like four temps, like a Walmart, they're, they're a really good candidate for traditional automation because their peak, even though it's a big peak, is still not a 4X peak. And it's because they figured yeah, out how to do the holiday season, quite frankly. Right. Yep. So in, you made the comment in, in traditional automation, you build the church for Easter Sunday. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you, you know, if you have a mile of conveyor, I mean, if you need, if you need more capacity, can't you just add another mile of conveyor? I mean, can you Where? qualify to build the church? Well, I mean, that's, um, that's typically the problem yeah. is it, when you start yeah. to put, put stuff in the ground, you either have bought a building that's way too stinking big. So you've got extra space to expand into or you've fallen into the auto store fallacy of we can just add more aisles later. Yeah. I mean, technically, yes. Like I could also chop my arm off every so often and I don't really want to do that either <laughs> because the project to go and build new conveyor into a facility is, is not a trivial pursuit. I mean, like that is not a trivial piece if your facility is running at peak capacity. Now, if your facility is a lightly used facility and you're adding it in there to get it up to where it's running 24 seven. Okay. A construction project's not the end of the world. If your building though runs 24 seven and you're doing that, adding more conveyor, not necessarily going to be helpful because the other part is 
you lose storage efficiency when you go over about 80% capacity. The honeycombing effect is real. And then you need even more storage and you have even more travel time because your storage is not optimized using traditional methods, right? And so that tends to be exacerbated because it's not like we just say, have a million square foot building and building a 500,000 foot building in it. And then as soon as I need more, I'm gonna build another half a million to get one million of really good facility. What typically happens is you do this incremental drips and dribbles approach and, it, and you try to stair step your capacities up and it doesn't really work right. real well. Yeah, and that's a, I think the, figured the next point was handling types and units. And one of the, one of the crazy things about COVID right now is how many businesses um, had the wrong, had the wrong profile for storage going into COVID. Not that they could have known, but right. the, the shift, the shift down to cases and niches right now is really mm -hmm. unprecedented. It, like it the, really is. And, and I argue that's why we saw shortages in the supermarkets. It's not that we didn't have cows yeah. getting killed all the time. I mean, we eventually, for some idiotic <laughs> reason, decided not to butcher for a while and cause the panic. Right. But by and large, because of the restaurants, the restaurant system was set up to do, I would argue, 80% of the food in the, in the country. Right. As soon as they yep. went to about 20%, we just had food in the wrong networks. And I mean, a lot of our local restaurants around here started selling it out of the back of their store because right. they could get it, but we couldn't. And you're right. I mean, that yeah, hand one unit case is a big deal. I think for every, almost every business today, until you know what's going going to happen and what the horrific right. title of new normal is, you can't build traditional. You got to build flexible because what if it changes? Well, you know, it's going to change. You just don't know what it's going to change to the best way to value automation is how does it help the workforce in their facilities? The workforce in the facilities is the hardest asset to go and find, retain, and make better through support, through training, through uh, learning jobs, through changing operations, whatever. Workforce is the hardest part to get, attract, retain, maintain, whatever part of that you want to classify. And wouldn't it make sense then to put them at the center focus of how we do solution architecture and design for the facility rather than find the cool new technology we think is going to help and then design what people do around it. We should design what we want people to do, what takes their highest and best use of their time and then use supportive procedures and supportive technologies to drive that. All right. Well, that's great advice. Uh, John Stikes, everyone, VP of Automation at Exologics. Thanks, John, for your time.